So me, Sasha, I hear the word lobbying and like I envision some sort of dark, mysterious magic taking place, like one that plays into how our government officials magically make decisions that impact all of us. Right. Me too. But in truth, there are some very forthright, thoughtful individuals who play that role of lobbyist. They're hired because they know something about how the legislative process works. And those are people who are willing to give advice and defend positions about what they think is right when it comes to regulating companies and advocating for or against policies that will impact everyone living in our country. And I think that's why I'm really excited about today's conversation, because we get to speak with one of those fantastic individuals named David Louie. David and I met when we were on a panel together for an episode of the Asian American Authors Book Club, and I really was instantly impressed by his thoughtfulness because throughout the event, I also found out that not only was he attorney general of the state of Hawaii, but he also serves as a lobbyist for firms including Meta and Airbnb. I was instantly curious about it, and I'm so grateful that he was willing to share this time with us on the podcast so we can learn firsthand about what lobbying really actually means for individuals and I think importantly for this arc, the future of our democracy, you know, no big. Right. Nothing big at all. But personally, for me, I'm also adding lobbyist as another career path for lawyers who want to use their advocacy skills in a different yet similar way. So lawyers, listen up. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, where we model and normalize conversations about race and racism as we work to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Hi, I'm David Louie. I'm an attorney in Honolulu, Hawaii, and I'm in private practice. But in a former life, a few years ago, I served as the attorney general of the state of Hawaii. It's fantastic. And you have some specific experience that we get to talk about today because Misasha and I have been doing this arc on civics and civic engagement. And one part I'm really excited to cover is this less discussed but really influential role of the lobbyists in the government. And just to take a moment here for those who are listening, you know, the official definition of lobbyist is a person who takes part in an organized attempt to influence legislators, right, or influence government decisions, actions, policies on behalf of a group or on behalf of the individuals who hire them. I think like the quiet agreement is, you know, hey, we supported you and your interests, and in return, you support us and ours by voting either for or against this bill, by funding that subsidy, by extending the exemption, loosening the regulation, making other changes, right? So there's huge impact because of the systems that can eventually ripple through in society. But to me, until now, this idea of lobbying has remained this huge mystery. And so I'm really excited to dive in. You know, David, you have been hired as a lobbyist. Can you talk us through your example? Sure. So I served for four years as the attorney general in the state of Hawaii from 2011 to the end of 2014. And in that process, I worked a lot with the legislature because they were my client as the attorney general representing everybody in the state of Hawaii. But also there were bills that we had to weigh in on, matters that we wanted to try and push through the legislature uh, for the administration or for my department. And so I learned an awful lot about that. And after I left that position, a couple of clients uh, who I had worked with before, that is, they had interests, and I had become familiar with their lobbyists and their public policy arms, uh, they came and said, hey, uh, are you interested in assisting us? Uh, in Hawaii. And for so I do some lobbying currently for uh, Meta, which is Facebook, 
And I also do some work for Airbnb. And I also do some work for Geico, which is an insurance company. So I'm not a full-time lobbyist. I'm a lawyer. I go in and I go to court. I litigate. I, you know, we fight at trials and things like that over money. Civil litigation is what I do. But I also go up to the legislature because I know something about the process. And I help my clients to advocate their positions and their policy concerns. Me, Sasha, are lawyer on staff here at Dear White Women is smiling, thinking about all of her work as an attorney as well. Do you think that, you know, when I guess there's no other traditional path to becoming it, you're saying that most of the time people have some familiarity with the workings of the government, with the workings of what it takes to make law. Like, do you think that people want to become lobbyists? Is it a thing that people aspire to? Or like you, is it something that people take on sort of as a, I'm involved in this for the you know, in this for the work anyway? You know, some people take it on because they want to do that. You know, the interesting thing, so I was in private practice all my life, all of my career, and then I uh, made a kind of a sideways move to become the attorney general, which is an appointed office in Hawaii, unlike most states which are elected. And so having done that, I had to learn a lot about the process of government, which is a black box for most people. It's uh, unknown, People think it's screwed up. People think it's a mystery. They don't know how it works. They just think they hate it. And sometimes they don't want to have anything to do with it. Okay. But, you know, the process of government, the process of democracy is governed by rules, processes, and procedures and laws. And uh, now they're different from the laws in court. I mean, some people don't know what lawyers do and how judges make decisions and things like that. And they also don't know what happens in boardrooms, in businesses, and how business decisions are made. And so it's a matter of learning what those processes and procedures are and how decisions are made. And then, you know, lobbyists try and get their positions known, try and either push through initiatives that will help them in their interests or kill other initiatives that will hurt them and their interests. But, you know, it's not just all special interests. There's public policy, public interest people involved, the Sierra Club, environmental groups, good government groups, public parks groups, all kinds of people are advocating all kinds of things. So people come to the process. And if you have worked in government, then it's a natural that you might get involved if once you leave government because you know how the process works and you can use that knowledge to help further either interests of clients that, that you consult for or of pet projects or pet values and causes that you might want to pursue yourself. Well, that's really a good perspective there. And I was thinking about how a lobbyist, you know, you need to know how the governmental systems work, but then you also need to understand the field that you're representing. For you, Meta, like how, what is the whole tech landscape? So does the company that hire you as a lobbyist typically tell you how to exert your influence or do you have, you know, autonomy? You know, how does that relationship work with the companies you're hired by? Well, it's not black and white. It's a series of gradations of gray and, and uh, everything works, you know, just, I mean, there's pluses and minuses. So for example, let's just take Meta. They would ask me for my judgment. It's like going to a lawyer or to a consultant. What do you think? Here's this issue coming up. 
here's our position on it. What do you think? Can we advocate? Can we get traction with legislators? Will we have allies on this? You know, I mean, if they wanted to do something that was blatantly unconstitutional, I would tell them that's not going to work. But if somebody else is trying to do something that is blatantly unconstitutional or illegal, that would negatively impact them, I'm going to tell them, well, I think that we can raise those points. But most of the things fall in the area, you know, they're not always so clear. I've always kind of thought of the government process, the legislature, as like a giant sumo wrestling match, which is appropriate uh, coming from Hawaii, you know, because we have uh, an Asian American population and, and an affinity with Japan and sumo wrestling's big in Japan. But my analogy is, is that you've got a bunch of half-naked interests. Sometimes they're fully naked in the legislature, you know, but they're pushing and shoving each other around this ring, seeking dominance, seeking to get their way, seeking to make policy. And so that's what the process is. That's, it is messy. It's democracy. But that's happened from time immemorial. And the way democracy has worked is you've had interests that have tried to assert their dominance. Well, I love many things about that answer. First of all, I love that you started with Shades of Grey because Sarah really hates it when I answer things like that because she says I'm trying to lawyer her. So I appreciate that you said that, David, and not me. She just nodded with that. So I and, you know, I also appreciate that, you know, the emphasis on democracy being messy, right? Because I think people think that it's supposed to work in one way. And when it doesn't work that way, that it's inherently broken. But it is obviously way more complex than that. So I appreciate you making that point. And this next question that I want to ask is something as a civil litigator, too, I'm really interested to ask because this is something I think about a lot, which is, sources of information, right? And where, you know, you were just talking about how when you meet with companies, you know, you're really, as a lobbyist, right, you're still using sort of those legal skills and that, and a legal relationship in certain ways to analyze, right, what they're asking, you know, giving them advice in that same way. And so how do you get those sources of information as a lobbyist? You know, are you sort of constrained to what the companies that are, you know, you're meeting with provide for you? Are you expected to do your own independent research? What does that look like? So for a lobbyist, just like a lawyer, more information is always better than less information. And you get your information from wherever you can find it. You get it from the companies, you get it from the clients, you get information from opponents and adverse uh, people who want to do things that you don't like or your client doesn't like, but you have to confront it because you have to deal with it. Ultimately, what's happening is, is legislators are decision makers. And it's sort of like, you know, the judicial process. Judges are decision makers or juries are decision makers. Here, the judge and jury is the legislature and possibly the governor. You know, because you've got to, if a bill is going to become law, if there's going to be a law put into place or policies put into place, it's got to go through the legislature. It's got to pass both houses of the legislature, and then it has to get signed by the governor. And there's a lot of hurdles and a lot of potential barriers on the way to doing that. And so all information is good. And you want to have information not only about the issue 
that you're talking about, whatever that issue might be. You want to know what the policy positions are of the company. You don't want to be surprised. You want to know what their history has been, what the history has been of the advocates on the other side or other allies have been so that you're not surprised about that. And then, but you're going to use your own judgment too. I mean, uh, I'm not, you know, you're like any other good lawyer, you are an independent consultant. You're not just saluting and saying, yes, client, I will do whatever you say. You know, if they want you to jump off a bridge, you go, no, I don't think so. <laughs> That's not going to work. And let me tell you why. So you get all this information and then you give advice to your client, just like a lawyer would, about here's what I think is possible. I mean, that, there's that saying that politics is the art of the possible, okay, because it is a people to people business. All right. I mean, legislators are decision makers. They're not as highly trained as judges in legal matters. Um, but a lot of policies are not as, you know, uh, complex as legal matters sometimes. So you're trying to put your point of view out there, put your concerns out there so that people will hear you and maybe they won't go your way. You know, I mean, maybe they don't like what you're saying, but you're also appealing to them of, well, wait a minute, don't ruin our business. Don't do something. It makes it impossible. Worry about the unintended consequences and worry about the constitutionality and the legality of these things. Because after all, legislators by and large are, you know, people trying to do the right thing. They're listening to constituents. They're thinking about issues, you know, take gun control, right? take abortion, take any of these hugely controversial issues. People are trying to do what they think is right, but they're also trying to make sure that all voices are heard and concerns are hopefully dealt with. So it's an interactive process. Thank you for fleshing that out for us. And I have another question sort of on that people to people and when you go into meetings with, you know, the legislators, what are those meetings like? Who do you meet with? And, you know, how easy are, or hard are those meetings to get? So the whole thing about the legislative process is you've got these legislators who are decision makers and they're also elected officials. So they want to try and do what is, you know, in their constituents' interests but also they can act out of their own, you know, so, but, you know, I mean, they also have their own moral compass and they also have their own sense of right and wrong and how they come down on issues. And so they can make a decision based upon what constituents want or what they want or what they think is right. There's all those things. So when you're taking a meeting with them, you're trying to present a point of view or information that they may or may not have or legal concerns about constitutionality or other laws that might conflict or other unintended consequences that could result if a certain bill with certain language becomes law. Now, getting a meeting, quite frankly, I've always had a great deal of ease in getting meetings generally. Now, part of that is, is I was the former attorney general. And part of that is I know a bunch of the legislators. But in general, most legislators are open to hearing from people about their points of view. And they're polite. They'll give you the time of day to listen to you, even if they disagree with you. They want to find out, well, what are you saying? 
What's your point of view? And are you going to raise something that they need, even if they want to vote against you? They want to know, well, what are you going to say? And what are these concerns? And have I thought of that? Have I dealt with that issue? And so, you know, we usually call up, we'll uh, send an email or try and get, you know, Hawaii's a small state. So getting to see the legislators is easier than I think in California and certainly easier than in getting to see a congressperson, okay, a U.S. senator or somebody like that. But, you know, so you do that and you try and set up a meeting and many times they'll give you a meeting, but it depends on the timing. Sometimes they're really busy. There's deadlines and they don't have time or you know, maybe they don't want to meet with you because they disagree with your position and they don't want to waste time one way or the other. But if they're open and they haven't decided, many times they will meet with you just to hear what you say. I appreciate you saying that, you know, that they're most of the time they're open because even just as an average citizen, I'm just like, oh, do they have any interest in hearing from me? You know, there's a fear, especially because you say it's such an unknown black box operation in some ways that we don't know. How do we call the staff of one of our representatives? How do we like present ourselves, prepare ourselves to be heard? And I know it's different when you're approaching it as a lobbyist, approaching those conversations and meetings as a lobbyist versus an average citizen. But the fact that you're saying they are open, that they want to hear, that they represent their constituents is, is really reaffirming in that sense. Can you give some examples of successful or unsuccessful attempts at lobbying? Sure. So Legislators are very sensitive to what the public is thinking. A single letter taking a position one way or the other can be very important to legislators because the fact that somebody took the time to write a letter means that there's a bunch of other people out there thinking that. And so legislators will respond to letters and phone calls. Now, I don't think they really respond to the chain emails. You know, people say, here, just cut and paste this and send it to your legislator. And they get, okay, a thousand of the same email. I don't respond to that. And I don't think legislators respond to that. But if they get a lot of phone calls, it means a lot of people are concerned about an issue. If they get a lot of letters and they're individual sent by people, they think, well, there's a bunch of people out there who are thinking that way. So they're very concerned. Now, so you get these meetings and you're just talking, you're going in and you're talking story with people, like having a beer or meeting your friends on the street corner or something like that. You know, it can be highly formalized. And if you've never met them before, I think if you want to get a meeting, I mean, if you've never met them before, it can be stilted. But ultimately, these are people and you have a point of view. You want to try and not waste their time. You want to be succinct. You want to be direct. You want to put your stuff out there. It's always better if it's in writing. OK, and then you underscore it with a meeting where you answer questions or you fill in the gaps or things like that. But one of the things about getting meetings, I think that's important is to have allies. So sometimes I'm successful in getting meetings where I'm bringing several people other interests that are aligned. And we're all going in. So we're not wasting time. We're going in to present kind of, I don't want to say unified, but a similar point of view so that legislators can understand that. And so that's important. And, you know, I mean, time is, is a huge, valuable commodity to legislators. So you don't want to waste their time and you want to be as direct as possible. And so you go in and you have these meetings and you, and you 
try and convey your essence, what it is you're trying to get across. And then you, you know, give them materials to let them read or have their, depending upon how complex the issue is, to have their staff take a look at. And so there's that. And then there's also testimony where you just, if there's a hearing on a bill or an initiative or a policy, you present testimony. Many times it's better to have written testimony because then there's a record of that. Oral testimony is harder to ferret out. But, you know, you want to participate in the process. And I think citizens can. I mean, lobbyists are familiar with the players. They're familiar with the people. They know the process. So it's not as familiar for them. And it can be very daunting for citizens to go forward. But, you know, if you're aligned with a group, if perhaps you have a group like Stop AAPI Hate or, you know, uh, Dear White Women or something, you know, I mean, that you have a group that has a point of view and you say, hey, I've got this group and we've got these people. We'd like to come meet with you and, you know, give us 15 minutes, give us a half hour. We just want to present our point of view to you and raise these concerns. And I think you can get meetings. That's kind of cool. Dear white women showing up in the legislative offices. I like it. So then I have a question that's a little bit sort of bigger picture than outside of the mechanics of what you were just saying, because I agree, paper trails, great, right? Like in anything, paper trails are good to have. I feel like as I hear you talk about getting influence or getting the ear of the people who make the laws, I think about what it takes to do that. And sure, if it's an everyday citizen going in there, that's just their their time that they're spending. But the other part of it is, you know, lobbyists are paid and people who are being paid by organizations that make money. And so money is allowing for lobbyists to exist, to have influence on policy. So all of that's tied to capitalism, right? And so Facebook is probably going to have more of a say in the legislator's ears than small upstart electronics company that doesn't have the perspective or the money to get that same ear. So how do you think lobbying and the system of lobbying affects our abilities to make decisions that truly take everybody's perspectives into account? Like, do you think it's helping or hurting us as a democracy? You know, that's a super interesting question. And it's a critical question. So, I mean, on the one hand, money can be very, very pernicious and it can do bad things, especially dark money that you don't know where it's coming from. You know, there's a saying, money is the mother's milk of politics. Because one, all of these things are, have huge economic consequences. Government policies have gigantic economic consequences for businesses, for people, for workers, for unions, you know, and just regular people. And because there's so much at stake, you attract business interests and you attract special interests, but you also attract public interests. And so people do want to spend money. Now, I believe that most legislators are honest. They're not subject to bribes. They will try and do the right thing. And, you know, they're not going to be overly swayed by money. But I'm a realist. You know, there's money there and money can have bad, pernicious influences. And so I'm concerned about that. But I will tell you, you know, it's like money in politics. The United States Supreme Court has said money is the same as speech. The Citizens United case, and I hate that case. I think it should be more regulated. But the United States Supreme Court has said, no, we're not going to regulate that. And they allow dark money, too, which is awful. Okay, I think that's awful. And I think we should try and do more about that. I wish the Citizens United case could be overturned so that there is more regulation of money. But I think the good thing is, is, is that many progressive interests who fight special interests and many public interest people have also 
obtained money and sources so that they can present their points of view and get out there. Now, they can be overwhelmed by special interest money. And I hate that. And it occurs sometimes. And you just have to fight against that, being overwhelmed by money and perhaps dark money, uh, where you don't know where it's really coming from. So I think, you know, the one thing is, is this, I don't think you can draw a line between who gets to try and influence the process and who does not, because who's going to make that decision? And how are you going to make that decision? It's really hard. How are you going to distinguish between the public interest environmentalist who wants to do certain things? And, and you know, we've had, oh, extremists on that side who have taken extreme measures and then, you know, which are sometimes illegal. But you've also had, you know, illegal acts being done by special interests, you know, to so. But how do you police that? It's really hard. And so at heart, you have to have, I think, ethics rules, and there's more and more stringent ethics rules and conflict of interest rules for legislatures, which I think generally are good, you know, but ultimately we're relying upon the moral compass of the legislators we elect. Hopefully they're not liars. Hopefully they're not taking bribes. And hopefully if they do take bribes, we're going to put them in jail and curtail that. So yes, money is a serious problem. Okay, but, you know, I would say that a lot of progressive interests have stepped and public interests have stepped up to combat that and to still get their points of view known. And even where there's a lot of money, if you have a groundswell of public support, if you have grassroots organizing, you can defeat special interests. You know, special interests are I get that some people think special interests are really bad. But, you know, special interests run the gamut of people trying to do things to help their own interests or their businesses or their trade groups or whatever. I don't think they're inherently bad. I think they have a point of view and it's allowed under our democracy. The key thing is to is for legislators to always make sure that the special interests serve the public interest and that the public interest is always a important thing that is considered. And you don't want the special interests to outweigh or to step on the public interest or to prevail at the expense of the public interest. And I think when that happens, legislators will eventually be called on, be called to account and will get voted out of office if that happens. But, and that's why going to the grassroots and getting public support and public demonstrations and public people signing petitions and people calling legislators is really important. Yeah, you just totally summarized what I was going to say. Like, it really does speak to the importance of making sure our everyday voices are heard because special interests might have a leg up in terms of getting the ear of those making the decisions. But I want to come back to one thing you were pointing out, right? Like legislators are decision makers and we elect them but I think I'm just curious, you've been involved in the government for a while. Have you seen a difference over time in the quality of the legislators we elect? Like, do you think that, you know, one of the, the candidates have said stuff like we should have you know, mental health screenings for legislators or people who are running for certain office? Do you think that we should be considering some sort of training or quality control for the people who are even allowed to run for office? Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't know how you would do that. To establish, I mean, we have sort of minimum qualifications 
for people, but I would be concerned to establish some kind of cut line where you could serve or not serve. Now, obviously, I mean, it's a messy process. You get people like George Santos in who is just a flat out liar, and hopefully he'll either fade away or, or just be be made irrelevant, but he's going to sit in that chair for a while because the, the Republican speaker needs his vote. So, you know, I think training is always important. You know, you, in Hawaii, we have a whole new freshman class. Uh, there's a lot, there's a huge amount of freshmen in the house this year because of redistricting and just retirements and things like that. And, you know, people need to learn the processes. They need to learn what's possible and what's legal. And, and you know, they're finding their own footing. They have interests. I've met with new legislators before, and they think they can, you know, wave a magic wand and make things happen. That's, you know, it's not that easy. <laughs> Government's really messy. Getting initiatives through is hard work. You have to line up allies. You, you know, you have to do a lot of stuff. So, it's not easy to do. And I don't know that I would, to answer your question, I don't know that, I think better training is always good and doing that. But, I, and so I absolutely support that. And I support ethics training and I support letting people know what works and what doesn't work. But I don't think I would establish cut lines because I don't know how you would do it. And I think we would be accused of being elitist. I mean, back in the day, in order to vote, you had to be a property owner, right? And you had to be a man. And, and you had to be a certain race. We've gotten rid of those. And I think that's probably a good thing so that people's voices can be heard. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that part for sure. In thinking about how difficult, right, or all the components of legislating, right, and new legislators coming in and having to learn all these things, I also think about what is that future, right? What does the future look like? And so for you, I want to ask, where do you see lobbying going in the future? Because, as, you know, we're becoming more global as a society, we're becoming more tech dependent in different ways. And we're sort of as this is such a people focused activity, right? The rise of tech and the role of tech and AI and so many other things could really impact that. And I'm sure with your work with Meta, you see that on different levels. And so what do you see as the role for the rise of tech in lobbying? Or do you see a role for that role, that rise rather? Well, my view of tech is, is that it is a tool. This is still a people-to-people business. These are still legislators and the governor and political actors who are making decisions. And, you know, they make decisions for whatever reasons they make them for. Sometimes, you know, and one of the sayings of the governor I serve was people make decisions based upon their reasons, not your reasons. So, you know, you can explain your reasons to them, but ultimately they may not like your reasons. Hopefully they will. And hopefully there's other things involved that will help your interest. But people will do what they will do. And because it's a people business, to me, tech is a platform that serves the process. You know, a lot of politicians use Facebook and Meta to advertise and get their message out and communicate. And they use other platforms too. They use Twitter, they use YouTube, they use all kinds of things. And I think that's just with the rise of technology. I mean, people remember before TV, you know, people didn't use TV, but then they figured out TV was a huge tool that would help 
people get their message out and communicate with constituents. And so I look at it that way. Now, you have the rise of artificial intelligence here. I don't think AI is uh, ready for prime time yet. We've seen this thing with chat GPT, where it now, admittedly, the guy from the New Yorker or the New York Times was trying to push it and make it do something weird. And it, and it started saying, I love you. You need to leave your wife uh, <laughs> and come be with me, which was like, oh, that's really weird. But I don't think AI is in the position where it is creating content that is always true or verifiable. And it can, AI right now at the stage where it's at is prone to errors. And when it produces a product, you can't tell if it's made errors or not, which is why you have curated content. And I think that's going to remain with us for a while. Obviously, you know, some media actors, some media television stations are better at curating content and ferreting out lies than others. And sometimes some of them push lies. But, you know, that's kind of the process, unfortunately, and it's hard to police that. So I see the future of tech as continuing on, but that's just because these are tools that people use to communicate. The one thing that is important is the rise of foreign actors trying to influence the process of democracy in the United States and in other democratic countries. We've seen Russia on campaigns, you know, over the last 10 years to try to destabilize the United States democratic process, to try and sow doubt, to try and just create all kinds of confusion. And we've also seen countries like China try and lobby and use influence to push initiatives that are helpful to them. The presence of foreign money is illegal generally in the political sphere. And I think that's how it should be. I don't think countries, other countries, especially when they're trying to influence policy, should be allowed a free reign. But, you know, establishing what the guardrails are is hard. Establishing the cut line as to who can lobby, who cannot, who can present a point of view, who cannot, those are always very difficult. And I think we as a populace just have to be as educated as we can, and legislators need to be as educated as they can about these uh, potential pernicious and illegal and wrongful uh, incursions into trying to, you know, hurt our democracy. So I think those are some trends that are continue, that will continue. The other trend, which I decry, is the rise of incivility and the rise of name-calling and just non-toleration of other points of view and demonizing other points of view. You know, we're back to, you know, the politics of demonization of the other side. And that's what we're seeing now. And, and different people think that that's a way to get to political power, sometimes by appealing to the base instincts of their constituents. And I think that's terrible. And But it's there's not a lot I can do about it. And, and it's really hard to make that cut line upon what's improper about that. You know, we had back in the 50s, we had race baiting politicians, and now you have gender baiting and LGBTQ baiting politicians who are trying to appeal to some people's sense of grievance or resentments to try and gain political power. And it is unfortunate. I 
like to believe that there is hope and that we all as a populace are educated and will be able to see through those and that the American people are basically decent and will not fall prey to those type of blandishments. But sometimes I have my doubts. And I think all we can do is just fight and be as straightforward as possible. I really appreciate that because we have hope and doubts here too. But, you know, I think the nuances in where those lines are, right? How do we draw the lines? Where do we make those cuts is something that we all need to be thinking about, I think, and paying attention to as we watch these trends and the rise and the divisiveness, right? Especially to your last point, continue to grow. I feel like we could talk about all of these things for hours, but in the interest of time, what else haven't we asked you about lobbying that you think it's important for people to know? I think the important thing, and I understand you guys have been doing a whole series on the legislative process, which I think is hugely important. So the one thing I would say is I think people should be encouraged to participate. You know, democracy is messy. Politics is messy. People hate politics and politicians because they think they're liars and that they'll say anything to get elected. And there are some people who are like that. But by and large, my view of the people in the political sphere was is that they are just like the people in any other sphere. They're just like lawyers. They're just like business people. They're just like the union guys. Some of them are terrible people, <laughs> but most of them are pretty darn good. And they have good hearts and they want the right thing. And they want, they all want the same thing, you know? So I encourage, and I think it's really good that you can encourage people to participate, that they should not be daunted by the prospect of, oh my God, this is an unknowable world. It's a black box. I don't know how to do it. It's like anything else. It's, you know, there's that old saying that, you know, the way to move a mountain is one shovel full at a time, or the way to make a long journey is you take one step at a time. And I applaud people citizens who want to get in and help and make their voices heard. And, and they can do that. You know, if it's you, Sarah, or you, Misasha, and it's like, okay, I'm going to do this whole thing. Well, yeah, that's really daunting because now it's a, a single person against moneyed interests or big companies or all this stuff. I don't have the energy and I don't have the time. But if you find like-minded people, and you can ally with them and you find friends, you know, whatever your interests are, whether it's environmental, whether it's unions, whether it's fair wages, whether it's LBGTQ or diversity and equity things or stopping AAPI hate, there are like-minded people around, okay? And so you want to try and ally with them and try and work with them and jointly go in and hopefully move the needle or bring your concerns to the legislators. You know, the worst thing is to say nothing. The worst thing is to be apathetic, you know, and then complain. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's really good when people will get involved, whatever their level, at their local organizations. Here in Hawaii, we have local neighborhood boards and they meet and they talk about concerns in their neighborhood. And I used to think, oh, these guys are just, you know, junior wannabe legislators. 
But then I, you know, I should, uh, the governor made me go to a lot of these meetings to get his message out. And I hated it. <laughs> I just, oh, my God, you know, I'm the attorney general. I shouldn't have to waste my time. But over time, I really I thought, oh, my God, I was so wrong. This is where democracy is in action. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's in these small groups where citizens get together and they talk about common problems and how to address and solve common problems and common issues. And that's the essence of the democracy. And writ large across the nation, that's ultimately how you address things like environmental things, like the influence of money in politics, like, you know, elections and making government policy. So I think it's huge that people will get involved at any level. And you can always slowly work your way up. But I think it's really good that people will undertake that. And I think I want to encourage that. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about you or one of the books you've written, where can they find you? Oh, so I wrote a book about my experience. It's called From the Desk of the Attorney General. And it's by David Louie. And you can actually find it on Amazon. I went and checked the other day. It takes a little digging. You got to put the title in and, and my name, but it pops up and you can actually buy it on, on Amazon. And it's sold through local bookstores here in Hawaii at the Barnes and Noble. And I'm an attorney here in Hawaii. And if people wanted to contact me, uh, they, you know, you just Google my name. Now, I sometimes am confused with the other David Louie, who's much more famous than I am, better looking, who's a retired newscaster in San Francisco. But and there are a whole bunch of David Louis. I once found out, you know, that there's a whole bunch of other guys named David Louis. I was thinking of starting a club one of these days. But if you Google me, there's only two of us, I think, in Hawaii. And I'm always free to be contacted and to chat about these issues. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 